Father, guard the teaching this morning. Guard it according to your will. Keep it entirely in your counsel. Let it be heard in the way that it was spoken, Father, in love and with the intention to bring holiness to those who follow you. Let us hear it, Father, in that way as well, as words from you, spoken for our sake. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's time to return to Paul's instructions to the church concerning walking in love. Last week, you may remember, we gained a bit of a reprieve from Paul's exhortations to the Christian for how we are to live. And instead, what we heard last week was Paul arguing for why we should pursue this walk of sanctification in the first place. And as a reminder, he said last week, in short, our lives are to be missionally minded. And he gave several reasons for why we should have a missional approach to our life. And he sums up his argument, actually, in verse 14. If you want to just glance back up the page from where we are today, you'll see that little hymn that he quotes, which is a paraphrasing of Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1, in which we hear we are to arise from slumber, to wake from living like the world, like the dead, and to walk out our new life before the world so that we can serve Christ as he intended. We're to display light so that we can expose the world's evil and prove what is pleasing to the Lord. That was the summation of last week. And Paul says as we do these things, as we shine our light in that way, Christ will shine on us, which is a way of saying that he blesses those who please him, both now and in the kingdom. And so as we understand these truths, the point Paul was trying to make was, Gain motivation to tackle your sin. Find good cause in crucifying yourself, in walking in the Spirit, in dealing with those things that detract from our mission. You remember he started the chapter at the very beginning of 5 talking about some of those things, some of those, those unspeakables of our life that just get in the way of us doing what Christ has put us here to do. Things like immorality, and vulgarity, and the like. Things that distract us and detract from our witness. In Ephesus, these are the kind of behaviors that were likely coming into the church because the church was being made up of Greek pagans who were coming to believe in Jesus Christ. So they'd walk in with all of this sin as a part of their normal life. And so Paul called on the church to put aside that old self, to put on the new one that we get in spirit form from Christ, one that's consistent with our new nature, and to walk in that way. But I've also said as we've gone through this chapter that you know, we're not that far removed our culture is not that far removed from Ephesus. So we still have a lot of reasons today to concern ourselves with the very same things Paul was talking about. And in general, here's the point again. We have to look different from the world if we're going to convince the world that we have a different message than they have. That's the mission in a nutshell. And so Paul last week just gave us added urgency to take up that charge because he says your life, my life, it's short in view of eternity anyway. And that is to say, we all get a very little time on this earth to serve Christ before we have to go before him and report, before we get our report card. And adding to that, Paul says, the days you live in are evil. And that's just a way of saying that you've got a lot of things working against you, both in your flesh and in the world, even as you're fighting the clock to try to do all that God has asked of us in the time that he's given. And we do it in his power, but the problem is we get in our own way. So we have to plan, we have to prepare to do the right things so that we can hope to succeed at least more often than not. That's where we left off. So now, as I said, the reprieve is over. And we have to go back now into where Paul goes, which is continuing to name some things that can get in the way of serving Christ, of entangling us and distracting us. And he begins in verse 17. He says, So then do not be foolish, 
But understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit. Now Paul begins with the word so in verse 17, because he's drawing a conclusion for us. He's drawing the proper conclusion from everything he just got done teaching on the urgency of this mission. Because there really is just one sensible conclusion you can draw from what he's been talking about. If you and I are here to serve a mission, a purpose, and that purpose is to bring light into darkness and to expose the world's evil by proving what pleases God in our own life, and if we're supposed to do that by standing apart from the world, by looking differently, knowing the days are short, knowing that the times are evil, well then there's only one sensible conclusion. We don't have time to be foolish. We can't afford the time to be foolish. And the label fool in Scripture, it's a very strong word. We don't look at it so much so today in that way. But in the way it was intended in Greek, it is a very strong insult. It means to act without reason, to act without any good sense. And so given the importance of our mission, given the limited time we have, well, then we have to act sensibly. We can't afford the time to be foolish. And I think a lot of Christians are foolish in the sense of what Paul is talking about right here. A lot of Christians don't live with proper reasoning about what their life is all about. They're not thinking about it in those terms. They're not asking the question, what am I here to do for Christ? They're floating through life, sort of moment to moment, pursuing the world. And all the while, they kind of keep Jesus in a little corner. He's reserved for Sundays or Easter and Christmas or tragedies when I really get in trouble. He's just sort of a a safety net behind the scenes, just so long as he doesn't get in the way of what we want to do in our own life. What's missing for those people, the, the one I just caricatured? Well, Paul says in the second half of verse 17 that what's missing for them is they aren't seeking to understand what the will of God is for them. And in this context, the will of God has a couple of meanings, I think. First, it just refers to the obvious, that is, God's desire for them. His will for how they live, what they are here to do, what he has called and equipped them to accomplish. This type of Christian we're talking about is someone who has not considered the question, what does the Lord want for my life? And they aren't consumed with finding the answer. It's just sort of a theological question for Sunday school, and then it's forgotten. And because they aren't focused in that way, they can't walk according to his plan. They can't fulfill his purpose in their life. That's one way in which I think Paul is talking about this. But there's a second way, I think, and perhaps even more importantly. Believers who are not concerning themselves with the will of God in their life are people who are not concerned with God's will for believers generally. That is to say, they aren't studying His Word. They aren't seeking to learn His expectations for what good Christian living, called out living, looks like. They aren't aware that a judgment is coming. That a report card will be due. They aren't thinking about what will happen on the day they stand before Christ. They aren't concerned with how their choices and decisions will impact that day. That is many Christians. Friends, I know that from experience. I know that as I've taught on these things, it's not uncommon for me to hear from someone who's heard the teaching that they've never heard this before. And that will always lead to the next statement. And the next statement is always, why don't we talk about this more in church? Why is no one talking about this? I want you to imagine a young man who is drafted into the army at age 18, let's say, but he never bothers to read the draft notice when it comes to his house in the mail. He just doesn't open it. That young man has, in fact, been called into service, and yet he just keeps on living for himself, oblivious to that new calling. 
He's oblivious because he hasn't taken time to read what was provided to him to guide him and to inform him on this new calling. And we would certainly describe someone under those circumstances as being foolish, right? As a fool. Because one day, a policeman's going to knock on that door, and much to his surprise, he's going to be taken away. That's sort of what we're talking about here. Paul's concern for the church in Ephesus, I think, is something like that. A church living ignorantly, unaware of a mission that they've been called to in serving God, and even worse, in some cases, just disregarding what they do know, what they have been told, because they're distracted or they're deceived by the world into something else. They don't realize there's a deadline. They don't realize there's a call. They don't realize there's a test. They're just living for themselves until the the day Christ knocks on the door and says, it's time to come home. Let's talk about what you've been doing. Now, at this point, Paul calls out one particular form of distraction and disobedience in the life of a believer. Paul says, do not become drunk with wine. Now, there's no mystery as to the Greek words that Paul is using here. The word drunk just means to be inebriated, to lose control of our faculties by consuming too much alcohol. And the word wine refers to a fermented drink, common in Paul's day, still common in our day today. I say this because there are some who have taken this passage or others about the same topic and have tried to argue that wine in the Bible isn't really wine. Have you ever heard this argument? They would suggest that it's unfermented grape juice, and that's why when you see Jesus sharing the drink with his disciples, he wasn't really drinking alcohol, because we all know that's a sin, can't have that happen, so they try to explain it away. Time doesn't permit me to get into all the reasons why that's not true, but suffice to say that we know that the word wine in the Bible refers to an alcoholic beverage, and if you really want to dive deeper on that topic, go to the website. There is an article on alcohol on the website that goes into great detail about why we know that's true. But going back to this point for a moment, the Bible says believers have liberty to consume alcohol responsibly so long as they do not become drunk in the process. That is to say, we're expected to recognize that there is a line between enjoying wine the way God intended and crossing into drunkenness, which is abuse of that thing he gave us, and therefore it is sin. And substance abuse is a particularly dangerous form of sin in the life of any believer. Because of its nature, because of the properties of that style of sin, it robs us of our senses and it erects barriers between us and the Spirit of God leading us in our life. Such that if substance abuse becomes a fixture in our lives, it will likely give rise to other sinful practices. In the end, the sin of drunkenness is is willful abandonment of self-control. And it's always an issue of self-control. Self-control is a goal for the Christian generally. And it's a goal in all areas of our life. Nothing in the world should control us. Only the Spirit of God should have our obedience. Therefore, when we abuse wine or prescription drugs or illegal drugs or food or we hoard material possessions or whatever it is that takes away self-control and makes us a slave of it is a form of sin. So the question then becomes, why did Paul focus on wine? Why didn't he talk about some of these other things that I just mentioned? Well, first, wine was the drug of choice in his day. In fact, it's pretty much the only one. It it was made easily. It was reasonably priced. It was commonly available. And so there weren't a whole lot of other ways you could sin in this same way, this socially acceptable way. And so for the most part, anyone who had a proclivity to go down this road was going to end up in the same place. Now, today, we have a smorgasbord of choices for how we stimulate our bodies in an attempt to drown our sorrows, as they say. 
We can use many of the things I've already mentioned, and I'm sure there'll be a new one invented tomorrow. So what I want you to understand as you read through what we're looking at here, understand that this teaching is a broad condemnation of any kind of an inebriation, regardless of its source, because at the heart of it, it's always a lack of self-control. It's always a giving over of our body to something other than the Holy Spirit. And Paul says that when we do these things, when we show this kind of lack of self-control and allow ourselves to become controlled by something else, to be drunk in the case of wine, we are engaged in something he calls dissipation. And the Greek word that's translated here as dissipation in my Bible can have three meanings in the Greek. It's a word with three ideas associated with it. And all three are applicable to understanding what's wrong with giving ourselves over to something else. First, dissipation means self-indulgence or excessiveness in our life. Acting in an excessive way for selfish reasons. Certainly the decision to be drunk is easily understood to be an excess, right? It's drinking too much, that's obvious. And I think it's born out of self-indulgence. This definition reminds us that drunkenness is ultimately a choice. It's ultimately a decision. Christians who, who get drunk, whether through alcohol or something else, are making a choice. They are not victims of an outside force. These are not things outside their control. Now, there are certainly complex life circumstances that can lead us into doing this, obviously. And long-term abuse certainly robs us of an opportunity to correct because our flesh becomes so strong we don't know how to control it anymore. But in the end, becoming drunk, losing self-control in these ways, involves a decision or a series of decisions made in our flesh and at the expense of others. That's the heart of the sin. Secondly, the word dissipation means a squandering of resources, a wastefulness. And certainly losing self-control involves squandering resources. And I'm not just referring to the money that you might spend on the, on the habit, whatever that thing might be. But I think Paul's primarily concerned with squandering time, squandering opportunity. Remember last week Paul said we have to make the most of our time because we have such a brief period of time on earth as we live with Christ. And I remember we walked through this last week. You remember I said I counted in my life maybe 10,000 days remaining at this point, given my age and what I hope to live to, etc., So let's assume for a moment I'm accurate in that. That means every day that I might choose to spend being drunk or out of control at the whim of something in my life. Well, then I'm not serving Christ on that day, am I? I'm not engaged in the mission. I've taken a break from the mission. I'm just serving myself on that day. Well, friends, I don't have enough days left that I can afford to waste even one of them. I want to make every one of those days count. And I don't say that... Because I do, I'm not claiming perfection in this regard. I'm convicted as you are. What I'm saying, though, is I have a goal, an expectation that it's not worth it, that I can't afford it. Paul says the days are evil, so we have to be on our guard. We have to make plans. We have to adopt strategies. The Jewish mindset around this concept of a plan or a strategy to prevent yourself from doing what you shouldn't do, they call it fences, barriers for myself that put something between me and that sin that I know if I get too close to it, it'll capture me and I won't have control anymore. And we talk about this with our kids all the time, don't we? A fence for a teenager might be, you can't have a computer in your bedroom, it has to be out in the open where we can see what you're doing with it. Or filters on your internet service. Not letting them have the keys to the car uh, unless they've done their homework. Fences that provide some barrier 
that, yeah, you could probably work around it if you're determined to sin. That's probably always true. But the goal is, if you have a true desire not to sin, this will protect you from yourself in the weaker moments. That's a plan. That's a strategy. That's the idea of thinking ahead because the days are evil. And drinking excessively, dissipation from any source, is a conscious giving up of self-control of your senses, of your thought, and it's one of the surest ways to sideline your pursuit of Christ and doing His will in your life. And that's why if you're prone to those sorts of things, you need to take meaningful steps to avoid that temptation because the days are short, because the times are evil. Don't assume you'll work it out in the moment. Don't assume you'll do better next time. You probably won't. In fact, every addictive drug will create a craving in the flesh, doctors tell us. And so if we give ourselves over to it, we only make future episodes all the more likely, right? Because then there's this draw in our body that's growing. We're strengthening the flesh at the expense of the spirit. The only hope is you break the pattern and you break it by establishing a new pattern. You starve the flesh so that you can strengthen the spirit. And to do otherwise is to waste resources. And friends, the most precious resource the Lord has given any of us in doing the will that he's asked us to do is our time, is our availability. I've had more than a few conversations of late, it seems, with people in ministry or otherwise about an observation we all seem to be making at the same time, which is the number one tool of the enemy these days to get in the way of someone's sanctification, of letting a Christian actually do anything for the kingdom, is robbing us of time. And it always looks so innocent. The stories I'll hear from other pastors are the kids' schedule, the parents' work schedule, the hobbies, working on the house, working on the yard, working on the school, and getting the extra degree. And then none of these things are bad. I mean, they're all fine. It's not the things, it's the accumulation of them in our calendar to the point where our life is a nonstop drill of what this world wants, and Christ is in the corner. It's what the enemy does. You may not have perceived it as the enemy, but boy, he's crafty, isn't he? He's really good. Dragging us into things before we even realize it, and then we just can't escape. We all know that. The hope is to break the pattern and to save the time. Finally, the word for dissipation in Greek can be translated unsavedness. This is an interesting one. It is euphemism for unsavedness. Because the entire existence of an unbeliever could be described as dissipation. An unbeliever lives a lifetime on earth, opposing God, wasting their time in that sense, then only to spend an eternity in the lake of fire. Their life is one big, self-indulgent, excessive affair that ends in nothing. They will not even be remembered in eternity. That's the definition of dissipation. And so it's come to be seen as another way of describing unsavedness. And so in verse 18... Paul's applying this same word, dissipation, to those believers who get drunk because drunkenness makes the believer indistinguishable from an unbeliever, at least during that time, physically and spiritually. Physically, a drunk believer looks exactly like the world, really. I mean, you couldn't really tell them apart. While you're drunk, you're sidelined from your witness. You're not pursuing the mission. It's robbed you of your sensibility. No one could see Christ in you. You couldn't communicate Christ to anyone. You're just a walking display of debauchery. There's no way a person in that state could be useful to God. But spiritually speaking, a drunk believer is also like the world. And keep in mind, whenever I say drunk, I'm using Paul's word, but we've already said that this is a broader understanding. We're talking about anytime someone is consumed by their thing, that's drawn them aside and consumed them. One that I've encountered with some family members, 
is hoarding. Their limits of hoarding are simply directed by the limits of the size of their house. And then they get a storage unit. That kind of consumed approach to collecting something dominates their thinking, dominates their budget, dominates their time. That is another form of the same problem in just a very different way. So we're looking at a broad thing here. But in general, spiritually, when you're pursuing that thing that's dragging you down, then you are also like the world spiritually. Now, clearly, believers share nothing in common spiritually with unbelievers. I'm not saying that they do. But I'm speaking in practical terms. Practically speaking, a drunk believer is no more spiritually directed than a sober unbeliever. Neither one is listening to the Spirit. Neither one is walking in the will of God. Neither one of them is doing the work of God. So in that sense, spiritually, they've taken the uniform off and put the old self on, and they're living like an unbeliever. Because anytime you're under the influence of something that's controlling you, your flesh has taken control, and you've handed that control over to the enemy who gets behind the steering wheel for a while. And if you've ever been drunk... Uh, Do you remember saying or doing something that you regretted? Something you never would normally have done or said? If so, that's proof to you of what it means to be acting under the control of the flesh and not under the control of the spirit. The more we let that thing control us, whatever it is, the more our flesh gains control, the more our spirit becomes imprisoned to the control of that flesh. So now you have all three of these meanings of the word dissipation, all of them pointing you to the exact same conclusion, which is... You and I are engaged in a battle against the flesh, and so we cannot afford to be foolish. We cannot afford to give the flesh any additional advantage in this battle. The wise thing to do, Paul says at the end of the second half of verse 18, the wise thing to do is to be filled by the Spirit, not by wine. He's actually making a play on words here. Rather than filling yourself up with alcohol, fill yourself up with the Spirit. That's the idea. It means to come under the control of the Spirit that is to be filled with the Spirit in the same way that someone can be filled with joy or filled with rage. It's the same idea. That just becomes a consuming thing. The Greek word filled is in the passive tense, which means it's something done to us, not something we do by ourselves in our own power. So here's what it's saying. You're called to set aside anything that conflicts with the Spirit so that He then is free to lead us. To be consumed by the will and the desire of the Spirit, not by that of our flesh. And that's how the Lord has constructed the process of sanctification. It is a process of setting aside the flesh so that the Spirit then has opportunity to take over. The Spirit does not force Himself upon us. Now, in terms of salvation, He comes upon us without us doing anything. But His interacting with us for the walk of sanctification is one of letting us do what we will do until we're sick of ourselves. Then when we get out of the way, He's ready to take control and lead us. That's why it's a yielding process, passive verb tense here. Some believers have come to the end of verse 18 and they see Paul's contrast here between being drunk in the flesh versus being filled by the Spirit. And unfortunately, they come to the wrong conclusion about what Paul is talking about. You may have heard this in some corners of the church. People who would talk about a filling of the Spirit, something like a filling of our body with wine, something that isn't normally with us, something we have to seek after and hopefully obtain spiritually. This filling of the Spirit that they are seeking for as if there's a secondary experience for the believer there's the one you get at salvation the spirit comes and dwells but then there's this other experience we have to go looking for which is a filling of the spirit afterward 
And then they'll go on from there and they'll imagine that being filled with the Spirit, well, it must result in a kind of similar physical response to what it must be like to be filled with wine. They equate the two so that if being filled with wine makes us walk around exhibiting strange behaviors, well, then similarly, when you're filled with the Spirit, it must create the same thing. Out of that thinking comes... All manner of charismatic errors of one kind or another, including teaching that a person isn't truly saved unless they show some of these manifestations, or that we have to be seeking for this subsequent filling. But if you read verse 18 in its context, it makes very clear that this charismatic interpretation is the product of a wooden view of the text, a a very inflexible, hyper-literal view of the text. And it makes a very fundamental grammatical error. Those of us who really enjoyed English will enjoy this next part. The rest of us will all hate it. They are assuming he's making a comparison when he's actually making a contrast. Remember the difference? Comparison is when you're asked to find the things that are alike between two things. And a contrast is where you're finding out what's different between two things. Paul is making a contrast here between two things. That is, he's pointing out their differences, not their similarities. And you can see it's a contrast between slavery to a physical addiction versus submitting to a spiritual leading. And those things work in completely opposite ways, not similar ways. One is a barrier to serving Christ. The other is the means to serving Christ. One causes us to lose self-control. The other one puts our flesh in subjection to the Spirit. One is a giving in to self. One is a yielding to the Spirit. They're on opposite ends of a spectrum. And as a result, one leads to excessive behaviors. The other leads to self-control. In fact, Paul goes on to clarify what walking in the Spirit looks like in the life of a believer. Look at verse 19. Here's what he means when he says walk in the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. And always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. In this list you find four things, four behaviors that typify a believer in the Spirit. It's not an exhaustive list, obviously. Paul has actually picked a few things here that have a close connection to his earlier commentary about drunkenness because each of these behaviors has a parallel to what you might see in the life of someone who is out of control. So in contrast to the counterfeit joy that comes from feeding the flesh with wine or any such thing, then Paul is giving the example in this case of true joy among believers who walk in the Spirit. And these things, of course, enhance the mission in contrast to the other things which are dissipation. So first, Paul says, if you're walking in the Spirit, you'll know it because you will have a mind set on the mission, speaking to others in the faith, in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, I think at first thought, this sounds a bit old-fashioned to us. If you saw somebody walking around just speaking psalms to you, you'd probably think they're a bit crazy. And it's partly because of the way we typically see this. We see it in caricature. We don't see it in natural ways. What he's talking about, though, in a general sense, is public expression of joy in the Lord. Public expression. A psalm was a poem of praise. You can find these in the Old Testament book by the same name, of course, to uh, praise God publicly. A hymn is a song of praise sung to the same purpose, to the glory of God. And then that third group, spiritual songs, that's just any other joyful expression of spiritual truth. Like, for example, today, modern Christian music would probably fall into that third category, as opposed to a hymn, which we know is a more traditional form. He's just saying when you see someone who's walking in the Spirit, 
their expressions publicly will be through the mechanisms God has provided, through his word and through songs of praise, to the glory of him, not to themselves. You know, when you see someone walking around singing in public, ironically, you often think they're drunk. Because the same concept underlies both. A removing of inhibition, such that we then do things we wouldn't normally do because we feel self-conscious about it. In the case of drunkenness, we're doing things that are outlandish and excessive. In the case of the Spirit, we're doing things that praise God publicly when our fears, our worries about how the public might perceive us, are otherwise getting in the way. Paul's saying, look, if you want to be boisterous, just do it in the right way. Secondly, a believer in the Spirit directs their joy to the Lord in private also. The second category is really private praise. Paul says we are to sing and make music to the Lord in our hearts. That's an inward praise, an inward joy before the Lord. So find joy in knowing that you have eternally in Christ riches and carry that joy in your heart, praising him continually. This is another interesting contrast with addictions of any kind. Because addictions typically are a run from God, whether we see it that way or not. You cannot show God joy in your heart if you're so drugged or distracted by your addictions, whatever form they take, that you can't even think straight or think about him at all because you're too busy thinking about what you want for your flesh. In fact, the whole desire to be drunk in any sense is an inherent act of escapism, of running from God, of denying of him and a pleasing of yourself. It's very much like the prodigal son. The prodigal son is a story about a man who wanted to run away and enjoy his inheritance now rather than remain patient in the father's house under the father's authority. And then thirdly, Paul says, give thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, even to the father. Those, again, who escape in abuses of one kind or another are trying to numb some pain, distract themselves from something in life, some disappointment. And if you do that long enough, you come to rely on the drug just to feel normal. This is the problem with it. Seeking to escape from disappointments and trial is literally the opposite of giving thanks to the Lord for all things, including for trials, including for the negative things. The Bible says we are to thank the Lord for trials that we face because it is an opportunity, a spiritually appointed opportunity. James says that, of course, in James 1-2, that we are to consider it all joy, brethren, when you can counter various trials. And he explains it as this. Knowing that the testing of your faith, that is through that trial, will produce endurance, the ability to endure, and let endurance have its perfect result. What is that? Well, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That is, those trials that God brings in your life are cause for joy, not because they are joyful in and of themselves, but because they represent an opportunity that God has appointed to us to earn reward, to earn his favor, to show that we are faithful. But, of course, that assumes you approach them in the right way, right? You have to face them soberly. You have to prayerfully seek his counsel. You have to look at support from your brothers and sisters. How do I get through this thing in my life? Asking, what is the good thing you're trying to do here, Lord? What is it you're trying to bring out of me in this moment? How do I respond to this in godliness? Help me through this. If we can bring that kind of mature perspective to our disappointments, what we learn is how to count, James says, count it joy, or you could say how to consider a trial as a source for future joy. Therefore, we thank the Lord, he says, for everything. I've been in those moments where my words weren't in conjunction with my feelings. I was saying thanks, but I didn't feel it. It's one of those moments that you come to recognize that pursuit of Christ 
according to his word, is not based in feelings. If it's based in feelings, you'll only do what you like, which is no recipe for sanctification. And if we escape into a bottle or a needle or a hobby, you won't be thanking the Lord for the trial. You'll be waiting it out. You'll be too busy trying to forget it's even happening. Finally, Paul says that the Christian led by the Spirit is one who is subject to one another in the church out of fear of Christ. Now, Paul is not saying here we are to obey everyone and everyone is to obey us. That's just a recipe for anarchy in the body. That's clearly not his expectation. In fact, if you were to scan down the page, you'll notice Paul goes on after this passage to explain specifically what subjecting ourselves in authority will look like, depending on whether you're a wife or a husband or a child or whatever. But in short, what he's saying is you have to be willing to submit to those spiritual authorities in your life, whoever they may be. And everyone has one or more spiritual authorities in their lives. Children, of course, have fathers and mothers. Wives have husbands. Workers and slaves, as Paul refers to them here, have masters. And everyone has elders in the church, pastors, teachers, and the like. Collectively, these people, when they're doing their job properly, will help ensure godly outcomes in our lives. And people who are being led by the Spirit, Christians who are led by the Spirit, recognize the benefit of having these kinds of people in our lives and of respecting their authority and of turning to them in times of need. And if we allow God to work through those relationships, well then the Bible says we are the beneficiaries of that outcome. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews thirteen seventeen, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who give an account or will give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Those in authority over us are there to help us be more godly. That's the goal. And the Lord is so concerned with that relationship that the writer of Hebrews says he even considers those leaders responsible to some degree for the outcome of our spiritual development. So much so that they're going to have to give an account before him for us. And we can make life easier for those people. Or we can make life harder for those people. We can go after them and ask them to guide us and let them admonish us and take that counsel and do something with it. Or we can fight against the spiritual authorities that are in our life. And I'm talking now not just within the church. Remember, we're talking about within the family. We're talking about at work. You can fight against them. You can avoid them. You can lie to them, deceive them. You can even dispute whether they have the right to have that authority that they have. But the Bible says you just make life harder for them to do what God has asked of them for your benefit. And so you're only hurting yourself. By the way, I don't think this principle changes just because the person in authority isn't perfect. Who is? I mean, if this is a principle at all, it has to be a principle for people who are imperfect because that's all there are. So we can't look at this and say, well, my husband is not worthy of my respect because he makes mistakes. Or my boss is certainly not someone God wants me to submit to. He's an evil unbeliever. You don't think he knew that when he wrote this verse? That doesn't mean we do evil things if they ask us. But it doesn't mean we have to go the next step and completely dismiss their authority or usurp it. We're the ones who fail to profit, the scripture says, if we are not submitting in our hearts to those God has asked us to submit to. So Christians who walk in the spirit will be those who show a sincere willingness to be led by others in spiritual matters. And they will submit. Now, how does that contrast with the dissipation of those led by fleshly addictions? 
Well, if, if you turn to wine or some other substance, some other activity to escape, to deal with spiritual issues in your life, that's a failure to submit to leaders in several ways. First, by escaping the trial, rather than turning to the church for assistance and guidance, you've cut them out of the process. You haven't given them an opportunity. Secondly, by becoming incapacitated or distracted, you've erected this barrier between fellowship that even prevents the leaders from correcting or engaging you in your life circumstance because they can't reach you one way or the other. And then thirdly, you're disobeying the spiritual counsel and the authority of God's word, which I'm sure those leaders would have repeated had you given them an opportunity. Things like, do not be drunk, do not lose self-control, do not be distracted. In all those ways, we're not submitting as the Bible expects. Now Paul goes forward from here, beyond where we're going today, into an extended discussion of submission in the body. And I think he does that because if there was an antidote, a corrective force within the body of Christ for dealing with those things in our life, those fleshly addictions that will pull us aside, if there is a correcting force, it has to be those around us in the body. If yielding to the Spirit in your life is not easy and it's not happening, the solution is that the body of Christ strengthens you for that outcome. And that means you have to be submitted. You have to be listening to somebody. You've got to have a teachable heart. And so the rest of what Paul will deal with in this chapter and into 6, for the most part, is in how we deal with this struggle of submission both to God, through His Spirit, and to those appointed to support our walk. It's going to take us all the way into the end of 6. You know where we reach at the end of 6? We reach that famous passage in which he says, put on the armor of God. And he goes through all the details of that. That's the summation point of what he started right here. Which is, how do you defend yourself against what's coming against your flesh? It starts with having a submitted, loving heart that wants the best that God can offer us. And it ends with this appreciation of all the things God has given us to defend ourselves. There's a lot more we can say on this topic. Let me just end with this, friends. If you're facing difficulties in your life that lead you to feel overwhelmed, don't escape into prescription bottles or wine bottles or anything similar to that. Ask the Lord to help you understand why that trial was necessary for you. Why he knew it was good that you endure it. Ask him what eternal good thing is going to be accomplished through your endurance. Ask him to comfort you through the church body, through your leaders, through your friends, so that you would see relief. Don't try to escape it. Because, friends, if you escape it, he'll only bring the next one. Because he loves you too much to let you get your way. And in the meantime, you lose the benefits that the Lord was working to bring to you through your accomplishment of endurance, through your willingness to endure properly. Let's walk in the Spirit. Let's give thanks for everything that comes our way. Let's praise the Lord in our heart and publicly. And then let's look forward to the day we stand before him for the reward that will be ours. Father, thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to be reminded of these things today. Father, I'm, I'm aware that not all of us face the same challenges in the same way. So it would be tempting, perhaps, for some of us to hear these things as problems for another person or for another time. I pray, Father, none of us would dismiss the teaching on that basis that Rather, we would look honestly and soberly at our own life and look at where we find distractions, addictions, things that have pulled us aside from our walk, whether it's the busyness of our life, our devotion to things of this world, or the physical attractions of drink or food or substances that have uh, sidelined our, 
our mission, our walk. Father, and we would consider those things carefully today, and we would consider that the word was brought to us today so that we would have that chance to think differently going forward. And we wouldn't squander the grace that you've given to us today in the word. And I pray, Father, for all those around, any who need the help, that we would be supportive, loving, kind, forgiving, and patient, so that those who need our help would receive it. We pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.